Hello and welcome to the Rock Science Show. I'm Forrest Goulden. And I'm Joanna Rowell. You know, Forrest, looking around this radio studio makes me wonder what the microbiome is like in here. Oh, uh, wait, wait. What's a microbiome? Well, do you know what a biome is? Mm, to be honest, I could use a reminder. <laughs> well, biomes are often referred to as ecosystems. According to the internet, which is never wrong. Never. Biomes are large, naturally occurring communities of plants and animals occupying a major habitat. Okay, so a microbiome is a community of microbes. <laughs> That's right. A microbiome is the totality of microbes, their genetic elements, and environmental interactions in a defined environment. And make no mistake, microbes are all around us. In a single gram of soil, there are thousands of microbes. Bacteria, which make up a large portion of the microbiome, have been around for four billion years and have invaded every niche on our planet, even our own bodies. That's disgusting. You, Forrest Golden, are composed of 10 trillion human cells and 100 trillion bacterial cells. So you're at number 10 to 1. Mm. But, but human cells can be 10 times bigger than bacteria. Okay, so it's a bit of a stalemate. For now. <laughs> Come on, Forrest. There's no need to be paranoid. The vast majority of bacteria, something like 99% of them, are perfectly harmless, and they can even be helpful. Okay, fine. So what do you think the microbiome of the radio studio looks like? Well, there's different people coming in here every day, every hour, breathing into these microphones and touching the buttons on the soundboard. So I bet it's pretty dynamic. The community of bacteria probably changes a lot over a week or so. You know, asking you about the studio, I thought it would kind of scare you. <laughs> no, you, sc you scared me about that. I don't even want to think about that. Well, you're out of luck for us because that is what our show is about today. Recently, I had the pleasure of interviewing Jack Gilbert, a microbial ecologist from the Argonne National Laboratory and the University of Chicago. Dr. Gilbert is involved in this enormous collaborative project called the Earth Microbiome Project, or EMP. One of the first questions I asked him was, what are the goals of this study? Here's what he said. Uh, ambitious, to say the least. <laughs> uh, the goals of the project are to characterize the microbial diversity of this planet. Um, <laughs> as you might expect, that's fundamentally impossible. <laughs> but however, you know, let's not be daunted by impossibility. What we're trying to do is systematically approach the problem of what structures microbial life. And what I mean by that is um, bacteria don't live in America, they don't live in Russia and China. They, they live um, at this boundary intersection between environmental gradients. You know, so bacteria will live at the, um, at the intersection of the differences in temperature and the differences in nutrient or food availability in an environment. Much the same as human beings will often put their settlements next to a, a, a river because they have fresh water um, and also the farmland is good around a river. Bacteria will find a place in the environment, in the environmental parameter space that makes them happy. So uh, we, we are trying to categorize and characterize the space in which these microbes live. So the Earth Microbiome Project is fundamentally trying to understand what structures microbial life and how microbial life is structured along those gradients. Okay, so this team of scientists is hoping to map the distribution and function of microbes all across the planet. That really is ambitious. Yes, it's, it's very challenging. Scientists used to grow up colonies of microbes in order to identify the species in a given environmental sample. 
But this strategy substantially underrepresented microbial diversity. So that's not the best way to go study microbial diversity on any sort of large scale. Right. Now what, what researchers study is called the metagenome. The metagenome is the genetic material of all the organisms in an individual environmental sample. It can be analyzed using modern gene sequencing techniques, which can tell us a lot about the microbial diversity and the function with what these microbes are doing. Let's let Dr. Gilbert tell us more about how one goes about studying the global distribution of microbial life. Perseverance and, um, and collaboration. Collaboration is key. We're desperately trying to work with hundreds, if not you know, eventually thousands of researchers around the world. People who have collected a soil sample or a marine water sample or maybe they've collected some leaf tissue or um, animal tissue from uh, plants and animals. Um, maybe they've collected air samples or human samples from populations um, yet they haven't really thought about putting this, the data that they might create about the microbiology of those communities in any kind of context, like a global context. And um, yeah, so it's, it's, it's quite important that we enable those people to really put their data in the context of say what what do all the other marine samples in the world look like microbiologically if we if we treat them all in the same way if we do them all in this use them generate the data in, with the same experimental outline then we'll be able to compare samples from bolivia and samples from china sea and samples from the great barrier reef and samples from the english channel and the arctic and they'll all be comparable so um, fundamentally, we want to enable people to generate data through us that is comparable across multiple scales, multiple environments, multiple ecosystems. Okay, so let's say you map the distribution, diversity, and function of microbial life on this whole planet. What do you do with all that data? <laughs> well, the uh, EMP researchers are using this data to make predictions about how specific environmental conditions affect microbial communities. For example, they're studying the effects of the 2010 oil spill on the bacteria in the Gulf of Mexico. And they're also making ocean-wide predictions of microbial life that extend to 2100. But that's not all you can do. Here's Dr. Gilbert again. Okay, so we're generating a really big data set, a data set that um, fundamentally helps us to see what really me what really makes a bacteria grow in a particular environment. And bear in mind there are hundreds if not millions of species of bacteria and those millions if not billions of species, I'll, I'll keep on exemplifying the number of species of bacteria, they grow in every kind of environment we can possibly imagine. So we really have to understand that. Um, the, the One of the real big benefits of having this database is to be able to say Hey, I found this bacteria living in sludge from a uh, from a factory in Wisconsin. Um, where else is this bacteria found? And how do, do I think that this bacteria got here? Now, if it turns out this bacteria is found in the same sludge in China, in in Australia, and maybe in um, in in bogs or uh, or mangrove swamps in Brazil, um, then we have a, a a way to find out that information, but also to say, well, what environments can this bacteria live in, which can help us as people to maybe understand a bit more about why that bacteria might be found there. Uh, fundamentally, also, we we work with agricultural specialists and aquaculturists to try and understand. Um, why certain bacteria are found in certain environments that maybe 
beneficial for their agricultural or aquacultural practices. Um, for example, some farmers think, you know, the top end of their field, plants grow really well there and they never get sick. Bottom end of their field, plants always get a bit sick and their productivity is always lower. Well, why is that? Normally, you'd say, well, it's because moisture and nutrients, but when all of those are controlled for, it's probably because of the bacteria. And if the bacteria are different in the top part of the field and the bottom part of the field, and if we can show that this occurs in China, in Europe, in North America, in Australia, in different environments, then we'll be able to really get a statistical um, solid feeling that those bacteria are important in the productivity and uh, disease suppression of those plants. That data set seems gigantic. <laughs> so it must require a massive amount of computational power. Yes. And I asked Dr. Gilbert to give me an example that illustrated how much computational power this study requires. And here's what he said. So far, we've generated well over 3 billion 16S reads, um, which um, isn't a huge amount of uh, base data, mm -hmm. if you will. Like uh, the amount of sequence data that that actually comprises is maybe a few gigabases. Not, no, gigabytes. <laughs> Get my bases and bytes mixed up. <laughs> so maybe a few gigabytes worth of data generated. Not, not, not a tremendous amount of problem. You know, I can store that on my local hard drive. Mm -hmm. However, when I start to want to compare this OTU, OTU number one. When I say OTU, I mean a taxon or a bacterial species. Okay. So the bacterial species number one. I want to compare that and see how similar it is with bacterial species number two. And then I want to compare bacterial species number bacterial species number three. Bacterial species number one, bacterial species number 100, and bacterial species number one with bacterial species number one billion, mm. and everywhere <laughs> in between. And also, then I want to do exactly the same for bacterial species number two, with bacterial species number one, number three, number five, number 100, number one billion. And I want to do that iteratively. So I compare every single bacterial species with every single other bacterial species. What I'm doing is I'm actually comparing a string of 125 letters with all of the other 125 letters strings in this two or three billion uh, read data set. That's a fundamentally computationally expensive task. It takes a lot of computing time to do this. It's very hard to run it on uh, a system which has, um, like, like your laptop or, or my iPad, which has a very limited amount of memory. We need a huge amount of memory and we need a lot of processors. And only then can we really get close to being able to do this. Now, those machines do exist, but they're difficult to get hold of, and they, they are expensive to get hold of. So we are actually now starting to use um, a slightly easier approach, maybe a, a more collaborative approach, working with the community to get them to enable us to access their compute resources so that we can do these very big computational problems. You know, I'm a big fan of citizen science, and it's really fantastic that they're involving the public in this project. It seems like a lot of fun. It does. The Earth Microbiome Project involves the help of many citizen scientists. The data are available and even analyzed as part of a public forum. A massive project like this one really requires a lot of help, and they are getting it. Uh, the, the citizen scientists and also other scientists, scientists that may never have thought about bacteria, <laughs> physicists and, and chemists and mathematicians who have compute resources that are sitting around. And yes, you're right, people with their laptops at home, we're hoping to develop software. Um, in the mid-90s, I'm, 
aging myself a little bit. In the mid-90s, we had a system called SETI, the uh, Search for Extraterrestrial Life, and they passed out bits of data to people, and they would run on their, on their computers when the computers were idle, and they had a screensaver which showed you passing through data. Now, um, we, we, they did the same thing with protein um, folding. They actually pass out the amount of information into protein folding, and people could do that on their computer. We want to do the same thing. Yeah, we, but we want to, we want to um, take bacterial communities and compare them. And that takes a huge amount of data, so we're thinking of pushing that out into these spheres so citizen scientists can play a major role. Having so many people involved really helps both with the data analysis and sample collections. Can you imagine sampling every type of environmental niche on this planet? So far, the EMP has over 60,000 samples, and some of them are from very peculiar places. We take them from pretty much anywhere you can imagine, but it's important to understand that we're not trying to fill out the global map. Right. We're not trying to say we want a sample from every hectare on the face of the Earth. Mm -hmm. uh, that would be technically difficult and also scientifically not particularly exciting. What's more interesting is for us to explore gradients. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, we, we started looking at samples and they're being characterized for temperature, nutrient availability, um, for uh, pH, for um, total organic carbon, for, uh, you know, pressure, light availability, etc. And then we say, how many samples do we have from soils that are of a pH of six that cover the range of temperatures that those soils experience, say from minus 40 degrees centigrade up to plus 40 degrees centigrade. Can we find samples from those soils that comprise that gradient? And if we can, then we, we, we characterize the microbial community. Yeah. So by systematically characterizing the microbial community along these gradients and the intersection of these gradients, we start to build up this, this really detailed picture. Now, where are the uh, weirdest places we've had them? Well, um, depending on what you call weird. <laughs> so uh, we've had deep rock sediment samples from communities that are living, you know, uh, two or three uh, kilometers below the surface of the ocean, uh, surface of the ocean floor, sorry. Uh, we have uh, uh, samples from volcanic islands. We have samples from um, hot springs. We, we have samples from uh, African bushmen and from um, Puerto Ricans and Americans. I mean, Americans, that's strange. <laughs> um, we have samples that come from air, from insects, from uh, um, uh, well, pretty much any environment you can possibly imagine and put your finger on. We, we've tried to sample it. We've worked with collaborators who can get us samples from those locations. Um, we're actually uh, working with uh, Jonathan Eisen out of University of California, Davis. We're starting to look at getting samples from um, the uh, International Space Station. Now, if we can do this, we're actually maybe extending the remit of the Earth microbiome to the Earth-influenced microbiome, because it's still in the gravitational field of the planet. Um, but also, we, we're starting to, uh, you know, maybe explore those human habitats a little bit more. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we, we're now working in homes and on hospitals, trying to understand the bacterial community in those homes and hospitals. Now, that's all part of the Earth microbiome project, but it, it comprises the, the greater Earth, the Earth that we as humans interact with. Samples from the International Space Station. That is pretty wild. <laughs> and maybe you're right. It could be kind of interesting to study the microbiome of this radio studio. Okay, so next time we're here, we'll take swabs from the microphones, the headphones, the soundboard, the record player, the doorknobs, the floor, the logbook, the ceiling, 
the records. Wait, wait, no, no, that that's that's too much. That sounds like a lot of work. Well, okay, fine, but. You know, that's the type of thing that Jack Gilbert and his colleagues are doing as part of the Home and Hospital Microbiome Project. The Home Microbiome Project? Uh, is that what I think it is? Yes, it is. It's just what you would imagine it to be, studying the microbiome of our houses and our apartments. So the Home Microbiome Study was an interesting idea. We, we, we sat down and we thought, you know, um, what is it about homes and about human populations in indoor environments which which is interesting from a microbial ecologist's perspective. I'm a microbial ecologist, card-carrying ecologist, and I wanted to know explicitly why I should bother working in an indoor environment. Mm -hmm. I mean where there are no lakes, there are no rivers, there's no marine system, there's no soil, there's just surfaces and uh, you know and the door handles and light switches and, and people and animals. But you know, not a huge amount of interest for uh, for what we would normally consider an environment. Um, so I, I, I started to ask myself some very serious questions about that. And one of the questions that came to mind was, well, what happens when a um, when people move into a new space? Explicitly, um, you have a huge number of skin cells in your body, and you're shedding those skin cells all the time. And every single one of your skin cells can have millions of bacterial cells on it. So when you shed, um, say, a billion skin cells in a day into an indoor environment, those, each one of those billion skin cells has a million bacterial cells. You do that math, and you suddenly end up with an inordinate number of bacteria shed from your body into this space in which you're living. Right? So you spend a lot of time in, in your house. It's, an, it's a really rich environment for, for your skin cells and for you. So uh, we wanted to say that, well, you, you move into a new house or a new apartment, um, somebody else has been living there. Well, how long does it take that apartment or that home to start looking like you microbially? So we sampled people's hands, their feet, their nose, um, and also the surface of their home in their kitchen, their bathrooms, and their bedrooms. And we said, well, you know, how, how rapidly does this occur? So we started something from day zero, and we sampled every day for uh, about four weeks. And we said, well, at what point do the surfaces start looking like the people that just moved in. And that got around day five or six in some sites, in some houses. Um, uh, importantly, uh, the people that were living in that house redefined how and why um, the surface started to look like you. If, you. if you've got small children, I have two small children, and, uh, and they, they, they do like to um, uh, dribble <laughs> and drool and, um, and spread their uh, mucus over surfaces, especially floors and, and countertops. And they, uh, they, they actually did show an amazing transition. Their oral microbiota and the nasal microbiota was very similar to surfaces, a lot faster on the floors and, this, and the countertops than, say, on the light switches and the door handles, which they were rarely touching. Mm -hmm. um, whereas um, whereas uh, stay-at-home mothers or stay-at-home fathers who were living in, in the house, they had a much bigger impact upon the microbial diversity of the house than did the, uh, the partner who went out to work. <laughs> so it was, uh, you know... It, these these ideas might be axiomatic and we, we, these might be obvious, but we never really had um, rate measurements before of how quickly these things happened. Now we have these rate measurements which can tell us explicitly why and how people microbially interact with that space and what that means for the development of health or epidemiology. So our homes look like us in terms of the microbes that are present. 
That makes me wonder if you could ever identify a person based on their microbial signature. You know, sort of like a fingerprint. I had the exact same thought. Apparently, it's not as hard as you might think. It's actually scarily easy. Um, what, what we found that was remarkable was um, even within the first few hours of moving into a house or being in a space, we could tell that someone had been in that space. Now, it, when I said um, it took five to six days for that microbial signature to appear, I'm talking about absolute dominance. I'm talking about that the, the surface of the floor looks like the soles of your feet, especially in bedrooms and bathrooms where you're mostly walking around without socks on. You, you know, the, that, that transition was quite dramatic after about five days. But even, even immediately, we could tell that somebody had been in that house. And if we'd sampled that person, we could make a direct link between that person and the immediate microbial signature they left behind. And one of the key reasons why this happens is because the microbial signature is transient. And what I mean by that is um, you, touch, you touch a light switch, um, you know, light switch in this office. You touch that light switch, you leave your sebaceous material on there. Now, a sebaceous material may, the oils, may dry up very quickly. Mm -hmm. And the bacteria will start to die off when they have no more liquid to, to, to survive on. You know? Some may persist as spores, but on the whole they'll die. Now, if you frequently touch that, that light switch, then, then you're actually building up a residue base of oils on the surface of the light switch. Then it gets into the little rivulets on the, uh, on the light switch that the texture that helps you to grip the light switch when you when you turn it on and off, <laughs> or it gets into the the fine scale pores of the of the metal work on your door handle, or or you know all these surfaces that you can feel on any surface of any table. It's not flat. It's many many little <laughs> valleys and rivers, and and things get into there and they grow. So um, you know it can build up over time, but in the immediacy we do see those signatures, and. So it opens up some very interesting questions, like, you know, can we use this to track people? Um, theoretically, yes, there's no reason why not, but we'd have to build up the same kind of database that J. Edgar Hoover did with fingerprints for the FBI. <laughs> you can imagine a microbial fingerprint database, a national one held by the federal agencies, which would allow them to track people's movements through spaces without ever really finding, you know, it doesn't matter what, how many clothes you're wearing, you'd have to wear a complete body air suit. Um, to, to rob a house. You could walk into a house and uh, we'd be able to detect you within minutes. Maybe there would be products that would allow you to spray different uh, microbes yeah. around. Yeah, well, you can imagine that, you know. Uh, we'll, we'll find trade. Exactly, yeah, black market for, you know, for masking your signature. So, uh, Joanna, I uh, think you have a wonderful career ahead of you producing bacterial sprays for burglars. I like to think that I have some good ideas now and then. <laughs> So if your house takes on your microbial signature, and this only takes around five days to happen, does this mean that people who spend a lot of time together, such as married couples, start to resemble each other? Dr. Gilbert and his colleagues explored this very question. Yeah, well, another interesting fact is that uh, we, we found that the people who interact more physically, they, have, they share their microbiome more. So, you, you know, we, we could see this in, um, for example, three people living in the same house. The, 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 the partner, the couple, and their lodger, um, shared very different microbiome signatures. The, the couple, their microbiome signature overlapped quite significantly. We could see that they were interacting and they shared a lot of their microbes. Yeah. And uh, they looked quite similar, despite different sexes, different ages, different diets. Uh, whereas the people, the, the lodger, this separate person who wasn't physically interacting with, well, hopefully not, 
the, uh, the, the, the male or female partner who lived in the house, um, looked very different. There was no significant similarity. So we could tell people um, who were interacting as well. And that, that opens up an entire new avenue for, for uh, security potential, but also for maybe uh, divorce lawyers and, and many other things. I think you might have more customers for your microbiome masking spray. Unfaithful husbands and wives. <laughs> and another possibility, we, you could develop a probiotic spray. Did you know that when you sterilize a surface, you kill the existing population of bacteria, and then microbial weeds take over? So it's actually better to have a strong community of harmless bacteria because it diminishes the chances that dangerous bacteria will colonize a particular surface. So after you clean your kitchen counter, you could spray it down with probiotics. That sounds great, I guess. <laughs> well, it might help keep us healthy. Speaking of health, Dr. Gilbert and his colleagues are actually now beginning to study the microbiome of a hospital. This really exciting study is happening right here at the University of Chicago campus. In the hospital microbiome project, we had a unique opportunity. Same as with the home microbiome project, where we were looking at people moving into a new house and the influence they had upon that new house, how long it took them to mask the existing microbial signature in the house. Um, in the hospital microbiome project, we've, we've uncovered a new hospital being built on our very grounds in University of Chicago. And this new hospital, this $800 million hospital, is being built to house um, many different types of, of sick people, um, including uh, you know, very transient surgical patients to people with cancer or, or, or transplants. So we wanted to say, what, what did the microbiome of this building look like before these sick people and, and doctors and nurses moved into the, into the infrastructure? And then how did it look like after they moved into the infrastructure for a year? So what we're doing is we're sampling that building um, on two floors in uh, 10 patient rooms and two nursing stations and all the patients and all the nurses and all the doctors. We're sampling them for every day for um, uh, the, uh, a month before the hospital opens and then every day for 365 days, so a year after the hospital opens. Um, we're building up the most detailed longitudinal or time series analysis of the, of the micro change in the microbial diversity as all these doctors and patients and sick people move into this infrastructure. And specifically, we want to know, well, how do bacteria move around in this environment? Why do they shift? And how, how does that have any influence upon the buildup of specific bacteria in this, in this ecosystem? So um, fundamentally, it's an it's a investigation but it's also a wonderful opportunity to explore an environment which is very well controlled, reasonably sterile, um, uh, but also has um, a, a unique function in looking after people, in trying to keep them healthy and safe. So we have an opportunity to explore the relationship between bacterial diversity and health. Um, importantly, we'll be looking at two floors. The top floor, the 10th floor, has uh, cancer patients and people who have undergone recent transplants. They, they may spend weeks, if not months, in their rooms. On the ninth floor, floor just below it, we'll be looking at um, elective surgery patients, so patients who are just there for one or two or three days. Mm. Those, those two different time frames, you know, weeks to months to just a few days, um, represent really unique opportunities for us to determine how much the person microbially influences a space mm -hmm. when they're in that environment and how long it takes them to 
have a significant impact, a significant exchange microbially with that environment. That's awesome. It certainly is an amazing opportunity to study the distribution of microbes in an indoor public place. I agree. It's fascinating to imagine the invisible world of bacteria that we live in and that we leave a trail of them wherever we go. Also kind of horrifying. <laughs> but I imagine that this radio but I imagine that this radio studio is starting to look a bit like Forrest and Joanna right now. Yeah, I mean as strange as that sounds. And it's it sounds true. strange. <laughs> and you know, a microbial sleuth might be able to tell that we were here. Although you would also be able to tell by turning on the radio or by going to our website, grox.net. Details, details. Well, Dr. Gilbert was kind enough to stick around and play our game, the Grokatron 5000. Grokatron 5000, previously known as Deep Blue, is our supercomputer, and it had a few questions for Dr. Gilbert. It asked for each of the following famous people or characters, what type of microbiome would they be found in? For example, they could be found in desert soil, rainforest soil, the kitchen counter, etc. Let's hear how he responded. The first one is Prince Harry. Desert. <laughs> Afghanistan. Uh, you know, he's, <laughs> he's a soldier, so he's probably going to be found in one of the warring parts of the world. <laughs> okay. <laughs> what about um, the pop star, uh, Lady Gaga? Uh, Lady Gaga's got to be in... Um, I, she's a tricky one, isn't she? Uh, <laughs> I'd say her ability to survive um, severe abuse by the press, as well as her unique ability to uh, undergo rapid changes in, um, in her wardrobe, will probably place her uh, as a, an ideal, uh, ideal opportunist in, a, in an Antarctic environment, <laughs> whereby she could, uh, she could eliminate the competition and survive unhindered. Wow, that's a great recommendation for her. What about another young pop star, Justin Bieber? <laughs> Justin Bieber. Well, I don't know. He probably would be. Uh, um, does this have to be terrestrial, or can I go indoors? Oh, sure. He's probably be found in the bathroom somewhere. Uh, I don't know. Uh, Justin... I feel like he's in a very comfortable environment. Yeah, probably. Yeah. His needs are being met. His needs are being met. So let's put it that way. Let's leave it at that one. <laughs> okay, um, what about the fictional character Sherlock Holmes? Sherlock Holmes, wow, um, definitely uh, tropical forest soil. Um, he's a, you know, he's very complex, uh, you know, has a huge number of interactions and an ability to understand his environment in a way which uh, most other microbes would never have the opportunity to explore. And finally, <laughs> the actor Charlie Sheen. Charlie Sheen, geez, uh, probably in a hydrothermal vent somewhere, <laughs> rushing off his nuts. <laughs> On that note, it's time to end today's episode. I'd like to take this opportunity to thank Jack Gilbert for being such an amazing guest. Yes, I had a lot of fun speaking with him. You can find more episodes on our website, grox.net. We're also on iTunes, prx.org, archive.org, Facebook, and Twitter, so you can look for us there. From everyone at Grox, including myself, Charles Lee, Frank Ling, Elise Kovic, and Forrest Golden, have a fantastic week, and keep on grokking.